Matthew Bowen is an assistant professor of religious education at Brigham Young University, Hawaii, where he has taught since 2012. He holds a PhD in biblical studies from the Catholic University of America, good strong Mormon school, right? Um, in Washington, D.C., where he earned an MA in biblical studies and he previously earned a BA in English with a minor in classical studies, the Greek emphasis from Brigham Young University. And it goes on with a lot more with uh, studies in Semitic languages, Egyptian and Latin, and taught, now he currently teaches at um, Brigham Young University. So with that, I'll turn the time over to Matthew Bowen. Thank you, and thank you for staying. I should add that I, I earned a PhD in Biblical Studies in 2014. That was two years after I'd started it at BYU Hawaii, and it, it's become the dream job that I didn't realize before I worked there that was, was it's a dream, it's a truly a blessing to be there. Brothers and sisters, aloha. Aloha. Um, Inarguably, Jesus Christ is the most important figure described in the Book of Mormon, and his name the most important used therein. Apart from divine names and titles, however, personal, the personal names Nephi and Laman and their gentilic derivatives, Lamanites and Nephites, appear to constitute the most important names in the Book of Mormon text. As Hugh Nibley understood, Taking the Book of Mormon seriously as an ancient text means taking seriously the evidence of its onomasticon, its names. In the accounts of ancient Israel's ancestors from Adam, humanity, and Eve, life giver, and Noah, rest, on down to Abraham, father of a multitude, Isaac, may he laugh or rejoice, Jacob, Israel, associated with supplanting, struggling, and wrestling with God, Judah, praise, Joseph, may he, God, add, Ephraim, doubly fruitful, the actual meanings and perceived meanings of names served as important keys to understanding the scriptural narratives told about them. The meanings of these names also sometimes had implications for their descendants. For example, the, the quasi-etymological pejorative association of the name Jacob with Akab, that's the heel as a noun, and supplant as a verb, in Genesis forms the basis for the prophet Jeremiah's later criticism of Jacob's descendants. Every, every brother will utterly supplant. Akob, Yaakob, Jeremiah 9.4. The names Jacob and Israel are further ideologized in the biblical text in terms of wrestling and struggling with gods and men. The perceived meanings of the name Judah, praise, or thanks, had implications in Jacob's blessing for Judah's descendants. Genesis 49, 8, Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. The Judahites, or Jews, those to be praised out of a feeling of gratitude, we would recognize um, 2 Nephi 29, 4, when the Lord says, what thank they, meaning the Gentiles, the Jews, as an allusion to that. Even in the Deuteronomistic accounts of Israel's early monarchic period, uh, Saul, whose name means asked, David, which means beloved of deity, Solomon, his replacement or his peace, the meaning of the king's names constituted important elements in the way their biographies were presented in the scriptural narratives. 
Michael O'Connor has observed that the ancients display awareness of meanings, of meanings and shapes of names chiefly in literature. Since Nephi's small plates and Mormon's abridgment of Nephi rec prophetic records more than qualify as literature, among other things, one cannot fully evaluate the onomastic evidence of the Book of Mormon without also investigating the awareness of the meanings and shapes of names within the text. Given the frequency and pervasiveness of the names Nephi and Nephites, Laman and Lamanites in the Book of Mormon, it behooves careful readers of the Book of Mormon to understand as nearly as possible what those names meant to those who used Lamanites and Nephites as sociological descriptors. Hugh Nibley long ago noted that Lamanites and Nephites were used to designate not racial but political, military, religious, and cultural divisions and groupings of people. The Lamanite and Nephite division was tribal rather than racial, each of the main groups representing an amalgamation of tribes that retained their identity. In this presentation, we'll, we'll see that see evidence from the Book of Mormon in which the awareness of the etymological meaning of Nephi and Nephites and the Nephite pejoration of the name Laman and Lamanites are both abundantly reflected in the text. This evidence suggests that the meaning of the name Nephi, good, fair, and the, the concept of fair in the context of Nephi's vision of the Tree of Life as a foundational narrative both shaped and reflected Nephite political, cultural, and religious self-perceptions long after Nephi's time. Similarly, the Nephite pejoration of the name Laman and Lamanites, by pejoration I want you to understand, I mean that means to make a negative, to enforce or reinforce a negative meaning. The Nephite pejoration of the name Laman and and Lamanites reinforced negative Nephite attitudes toward and traditions regarding the Lamanites, also in the context of Nephi's vision of the Tree of Life. We often estimate, under, underestimate the tremendous importance and influence of this vision over time. Just as Jacob Israel, Judah, and Ephraim retained meaning as gentilic eponyms, characterizing their descendants, it appears the, the Nephites as good or fair ones and the Lamanites, as those who had dwindled in unbelief, emerge as two of the most dominant onomastic motifs running throughout the Book of Mormon. All right, so part one, Nephi is key word. Over 25 years ago, John Gee, using Semitic inscriptional evidence convincingly argued that the, the Book of Mormon named Nephi best matches the Syro-Palestinian form of the common Egyptian name Nefer during the late period. As a personal name, Nefer would have been pronounced Nephi, Nephi, or Nufi by Lehi's time. The extremely common Egyptian lexeme Nefer denotes good, fine, goodly of quality or beautiful, fair of appearance, or good, fair of character or repute. As I've argued elsewhere, Guy's suggestion has important implications for how we read numerous Book, Book of Mormon passages. Beginning with Nephi's autobiographical introduction in the very first verse of the Book of Mormon. I, Nephi, the name means good, goodly, 
fair. Having been born of goodly parents, therefore I was taught somewhat in all the learning of my father. And having many, uh, seen many afflictions in the course of my days, nevertheless having been highly favored of the Lord in all my days, yea, and having a great knowledge of the goodness and the mysteries of God, therefore I make a record of my proceedings in my days. So, Nephi plays on the meaning of his Egyptian name, good, goodly, fair, in attributing the appropriateness of his own given name, goodly, to the goodly character and quality of his own parents who helped him, helped set him on the spiritual path on which he would acquire a great knowledge of the goodness of God. Kevin Barney and John Gee have both separately argued and quite persuasively from my view against the old canard that goodly in 1 Nephi 1.1 is somehow synonymous with wealthy. I've also argued this point. The evidence is just not there in the 19th century or in the Oxford Dictionary. Um, Enos's similarly structured autobiographical introduction with its similar play on the meaning of Enos, a name which means in Hebrew man, we can also appears to confirm Nephi's use of autobiographical wordplay. We notice I, you can see the, the, the structural and language parallels there. Enos, a name which means man, Nephi, a name which means good, goodly, and then how the, the, those meanings are reflected in the, in, the, in the words that follow their name. Later Book of Mormon passages further support Nephi as a dever, de, derivation from Egyptian Nefer. I'm going to move quickly through this evidence, but I want you to see it. Um, Helaman explains the naming of his sons, Lehi and Nephi, thus. Remember in Helaman 5. Behold, I have given unto you the names of your, our first parents, which came out of the land of Jerusalem. And this I have done, that when you remember your names, you may remember them. And when you remember them, you may remember their works. And when you remember their works, you may know that it is said, and also written, that they were good. Therefore, my sons, I would that you should do that which is good, that it may be said of you and also written, even as it, is, as it has been said and written of them. The one extant available text that we have which states that their ancestors and namesakes, Lehi and Nephi, and their works were good is in 1 Nephi 1.1, where Nephi attributes the appropriateness of his own given name, Egyptian good, to his goodly parents. Later, Mormon takes pains to show that, in fact, it was said of Helaman's son, Nephi, that he and his works were good. You'll remember Helaman 8, 7. And it came to pass that thus they did stir up the people to anger against Nephi and raised contentions among them. For there were some that did cry out, Let this man alone, for he is a good man. And the things which he hath saith shall surely come to pass, except we repent. Mormon thereby uh, demonstrates that Nephi lived worthy of his ancestor's good name. Um, most Latter-day Saints who have studied the Book of Mormon at length are familiar with Mormon's O Ye Fair Ones lament in Mormon 6, and more on that in a minute. That lament's characterizations, 
that laments characterization of the slaughtered Nephites as fair ones has a venerable history within the Book of Mormon. That history begins in Nephi's vision of the Tree of Life, which, which uh, as Daniel Belknap has pointed out, was clearly a cultural narrative for the Nephites throughout their entire history. That vision appears to have defined Nephite political, cultural, and social self-understanding for, for most of that span. When Nephi saw that the, the Latter-day Gentiles who would inhabit the New World, when Nephi saw the Latter-day Gentiles who would inhabit the New World, he describes them thus. They were ex exceedingly, they were white and exceedingly fair and beautiful, like unto my people before they were slain. Amy Easton Flake writes, by this point in Nephi's vision, By this point in Nephi's vision, the angel and Nephi have established through repetition that the color white is synonymous with partaking of the fruit. The, the fruit is white, the tree is white, and the individuals who partake of, are made white through the blood of the lamb. In other words, Nephi's narratological use of the terms indicates that, that these Gentiles, like his own people, have partaken of the fruit of the tree of life. And here I would add that in using the term translated fair, in 1st Nephi 13:15, Nephi creates a paronomastic association, a, an association through the pl a play on meaning between his own name and partaking of the tree of life. If we take seriously the notion that Lehi and Nephi's visions of the tree of life became a dominant cultural narrative for the Nephites, we must also take seriously the idea that this vision became the source of Nephite social codes, like the association of whiteness and beauty with the acceptance of Nephite religious and political claims, rather than simply constituting racial descriptions, as so, as so often assumed. When Nephi mentions, at the time of their separation from the, from the other Lehites, all they which were with me did take upon them to call themselves the people of Nephi, they were not only taking upon them his name, good or fair, but also the description of the white, quote, white and exceedingly fair and delightsome ones, unquote, from 2 Nephi 5.21, who had partaken of the fruit of the tree of life in his vision vis-a-vis -vis those who had dwindled in unbelief, and I'll say more about that in a minute as well. This, this notion surfaces again in a prominent way in Zenef's royal autobiography, which Mormon appears to have included wholesale into his abridged narrative. Like Enos, Zenef begins with his autobiography in a manner strikingly similar to that of Nephi. And you can see the the language and, and structural parallels there. Zenith's autobiographical introduction, like Enos's, exhibits textual dependence on Nephi's autobiographical introduction in 1 Nephi 1.1, including the use of wordplay, here again involving the meaning of the name good, the meaning of Nephi's name, good. Zenith's own name might have reference to, to Nephi's name, perhaps son or descendant of Nephi. 
if that zah means is the Egyptian term za or sa, a short, which would make it a shortened form of Nephi. We actually see the, the name Zenephi or Zenephi used in, at the end of the Book of Mormon in Moroni 9.16. Zenoph's wordplay on his own name, Nephi, and Nephites in terms of good is significant. Brant Gardner suggests that this, suggests at this point in time, those, those, that at this point in time, those of the city of Nephi were linguistically Nephite, but politically Lamanite. Zenith would not have been sent as a spy among the Lamanites if his language and cultural identity had di entirely differed from the inhabitants of the city of Nephi. Thus, Zenith's use of the phrase, that which was good among them, constitutes a rhetorical and cult a, a rhetorical, cultural, and religious reference. Brant Gardner is surely correct that those of the city of Nephi had become Lamanites politically, though they had probably not, in his words, abandoned all of their religion immediately. Thus, Zenith's statements and Gardner's observations make even more sense when we consider that the Nephites then and previously understood themselves as good, goodly, or fair ones, consistent with the Egyptian etymolo etymology of the name Nephi. The force of Zenith's wordplay then is, is this. Zenith, a descendant of Nephi, saw that that which was good or that which we, he perceived as characteristically Nephite in terms of language, religion, and culture still extant among the inhabitants of the land and city of Nephi. These political Lamanites having that which was Nephite among them helps explain his subsequent comment, I was desirous that they should not be destroyed. Um, a similar frame, we can see, the, and here I want to just sort of move quickly ahead through some of this other evidence. You can see these other passages. Um, for example, uh, during King Noah's time, Mosiah 19, 13 through 14, um, the references there to the, the fair daughters and the beauty of their women. Um, Gardner believes that the, the women provided a cultural excuse under which surrender might be negotiated for Noah's people. Um, we see more of this later in Alma 21. You remember the Aaron's exchange with the Am, Amalekite or Amalekite in the, in the synagogue. Um, The response to Aaron's preaching and testimony reflects contemporary political and religious tension, but also reflects Nephite identity and self-perception. An unnamed Amalekite or Amalekite stands up and challenges Aaron's preaching. What is this that thou hast testified? Hast thou seen an angel? Why do not angels appear unto us? Behold, are not this people as good as thy people? The unnamed Amalekite's fourth question is not merely a moral question, but also a cultural one. Are not this people as Nephite as thy people? In other words, since the Amalekites or Amalekites were Nephite political and religious descenders, the Amalekite was asserting that the claim to being as um, culturally Nephite as Aaron and the Nephites who remained loyal to the Nephite religion and political system. You go, fast forward uh, 
roughly 50 years after this time, um, when Cesarum or Cesarum was chosen instead of Nephi to be the, the the chief judge, Mormon makes the comment that they were they they that chose evil were now more numerous than they that which chose good. There's a double meaning there. He's not just talking about um, Nephite morality at the time, but he's he's speaking to their essential identity, how they perceive themselves. Um, Helaman seven. Nephi, the son of Helaman, noted exactly this when, from his garden tower, he inveighed against the widespread and increasing Nephite acceptance of the Gadianton robbers and their methods. Yea, woe be unto you because of that great abomination which has come among you, and ye have united yourselves unto it, yea, to that secret band which was established by Gadianton. Yea, woe shall come unto you because of that great pride which ye have suffered to enter into your hearts, which has lifted you up beyond that which is good. Because of your exceedingly great riches, as, as Gardner has noted, by saying it has come among you, the Nephites or Nephi declares that the the Gadianton menace to be foreign, not part of the the Nephite tradition, an idea from the outside embraced by insiders that should have known better. Nephi's further connection of the Gadianton robbers to the Nephite pride and being lifted up—that's Hebrew Ram appears to take aim at Cesarum, Siezerum, and possibly the Zoramites, whom Mormon char characterizes just a few years later as continuing um, to push the Nephites and righteous Lamanites into uh, the practices of the Gadiantans. Um, there's more of this, too. Uh, Gadianton. Um, describes the, the works of the Gadianton Society. Which society and works thereof I know to be good. He's at, at one point asserting the Nephiteness of what's going on, but also then says they are of an ancient date, which su suggests a connection perhaps back to the Jaredites. Um, we're familiar with these two laments as two of the, the most salient and poignant moments in the Book of Mormon. Um, two laments, 3 Nephi 9-2 and, and Mormon 6, 17-19. The first one comes from the voice of Christ speaking to the people during those three days of darkness. Note the language here, woe, woe unto this people, woe unto the inhabitants of the whole earth, except they shall repent, for the devil laugh, laugheth, and his angels rejoice because of the slain of the fair sons and daughters of my people. It is because of their iniquity and abominations that they are fallen. Mormon directly, I was talking to someone earlier in here about textual dependency. Here's a, a good example of it. Mormon, going back to that earlier lament as he gives his own lament, as he witnesses the vast scene of slaughtered Nephites at Cumorah. O ye fair ones, how could ye have departed from the ways of the Lord? O ye fair ones, how could ye have rejected that Jesus who stood with open arms to receive you? Behold, if ye had not done this, ye would not have fallen. But behold, ye are fallen, and I mourn your loss. O ye fair sons, ye fathers and mothers, ye husbands and wives, ye fair ones, how is it that ye could have fallen? Um, so that... So Mormon clearly alludes 
to the, the traditional meaning of Nephites in terms of the etymological meaning of Nephi, nefer, good or fair, this scene epitomizes the dire consequences for people who had, contrary to their traditional self-identity, come to delight in, 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 in Mormon's own words, come to, quote, delight in everything save that which is good. Moroni 9.19. All right, so that brings us to the second part. Um, layman is key word. Although attested as an ancient Semitic personal name at Ugarit, um, and a, as a Libyanite inscription, the etymological meaning of the name Laman remains something of an enigma. If, it's, if it is at, if the name Laman at Ugarit stands a decent chance of being a borrowing from Hittite, and if that's the case, the name would mean name. Laman is name in, in Hittite. But that's not necessarily clear. If the frequently paired name Lemuel, which transparently means belonging to God or belonging to El, can be used as an analog for Laman, perhaps we can get nearer to how the name Laman might have been understood by Hebrew speakers and hearers, if not to as an as yet irretrievable etymology. In this scenario, the initial La in Laman would, as in the as in the name La'el, and as in the longer form, Lamo in, in Lemuel, would connote possession, belonging to. In terms of sound, but not necessarily etymolo etymology, the remainder of the name evokes forms of the Semitic Hebrew root Aman, Aleph Mem Nun. There are a bunch of terms in Hebrew that derive from this, omen, faithfulness, trustworthiness, Amen, that's the one we say at the end of our, all our prayers, which means truly, surely. Um, emun, which is an, as an adjective means faithful or trustworthy. As a noun, it means trusting or faithfulness or faithfulness and trustworthiness. It might even denote faith. Emuna, which might denote faith, firmness, steadfastness, fidelity, um, steadfastness, trustworthiness, faithfulness. You get the idea. Thus, it's possible to hear something akin to belonging to, the, to faithfulness or belonging to the God of faithfulness or to the God of truth in the name Laman. We can hear the elements there if, if, if they're not present in actual etymology. That's an association based on sound. You, this happened all the time with you when you were a kid when people made fun of your name. They made sound associations that were not necessarily, they could be favorable, but often weren't. Um, so, an important part of Nephi's record um, is he emphasizes the con. The con he attempts to contrast his faith with that of his older brothers, Laman and Lemuel, and their lack of faith. But this is more than didactic ideation. Laman and Lemuel did not believe their father. You remember 1 Nephi 2.13. Neither did they believe that Jerusalem, that great city, could be destroyed, according to the words of the prophets. 
Nephi says just verses later, I did believe all the words which had been spoken of by my father. To brothers lacking in covenant amuna, faith and faithfulness, when seeking the plates of brass, Nephi says, wherefore let us be faithful in keeping the commandments of the Lord. I did persuade my brethren that they might be faithful in keeping the commandments of God. Let us go up again to Jerusalem and let us be faithful in keeping the commandments of the Lord. Yea, how is it that you have forgotten that the Lord is able to do all things according to his will for the, Lord, for the children of men? If it so be that they exercise faith in him, wherefore let us be faithful to him. And if it so be that we are faithful to him, we shall obtain the, the land of promise. Later in that same episode, the um, return to, from Jerusalem with Ishmael and his family, Nephi is obligated to exercise his own faith according to my faith which is in me. That is, that's um, Skousen's reading versus in thee. He, he's asserting his covenant faithfulness. Will thou deliver me from the hands of my brethren? These passages help us appreciate the force of Nephi's great thesis statement near the outset of, the, of his small plates record. Quote, 1 Nephi 1.20 But behold, I, Nephi, will show unto you that the tender mercies of the Lord were all over all those whom he hath chosen because of their faith. To, to make the mighty even unto the, the power of deliverance. As Noel Reynolds has observed, the content of Nephite tradition is much richer and affirmative than that of the Lamanites. In fact, it, it centers on another subject altogether. It's not just about the right to rule. For as Nephi repeatedly states, his purpose is to persuade his children to, there's, and there, here's the key word, to believe in Christ that they might be, that they might be saved. He adds, without Christ, the argument for Nephi's authority has no basis, and without Nephi's authority, the, politi the Nephite political claims collapse. Thus, the books of Nephi on the small plates served in part to explain why Laman and Lemuel and the Lamanite rulers who succeeded were not divinely ch chosen religiously or politically. They also served to explain what Mormon says that that some Lamanites recognized in later, year, later years, namely that it was the great spirit who had always attended the Nephites which had ever delivered them out of their hands. And all of it revolves around the Hebrew concept of emunah, or emunah, covenant faith and faithfulness, a concept also foundational to Nephi's doctrine of Christ. Indeed, that's what activates it. It's the first principle of the gospel, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So here we, we see the importance of what Nephi talks about in 2 Nephi 31 and 32. That's why it's important in the overall context of his records on the, the small plates. Um, the importance of faith and faithfulness. <clears throat> so all of this brings us to one of the most important negative examples of Amon or Emunah in the, in the Hebrew Bible. Daniel Belknap has identified several important connections between Deuteronomy 32, a poetic text describing Israel's creation in the language of cosmic creation and its relationship to, this is a, conceivably a text that would have been on the small plate or on the, the brass plates, and Lehi's dream. 
For example, the earth being without form and void, tohu wabohu, or better, empty and desolate, in Genesis 1-2, and the wilderness through which Israel traveled during its covenant uh, creation. Of course, the, the Nephites had a similar experience. This finds analogs in the dark and dreary waste through which Lehi traveled in his dream and the wilderness through which his family traveled. The Lord's guiding and instructing Israel through the wilderness, Deuteronomy 32.10, is mirrored in, quote, the man dressed in a white robe, unquote, who guides Lehi in 1 Nephi 8.5. And the Lord himself, again, when he appears clothed in a white robe at the temple in Bountiful after the earth is essentially recreated in, in a sense, in 3 Nephi 8.5 through 22 and 10.10. 10. So, to Daniel Belknap's insights, I would add that Deuteronomy 32 also describes the fate of rebellious Israelites who violated Jehovah's covenant. Quote, And he said, I will hide my face, Panai, from them. I will see what their, fate shall, what their end shall be, for they are a very froward generation, children in whom is no faith. In Hebrew, that phrase, no faith, is lo emun. They're in Deuteronomy 32.20. In other words, this poetic text describes Israelites who are cut off from Yahweh's face or presence. This ought to have some, ring some bells for us as readers of the Book of Mormon, being cut off from the Lord's face or presence because of a lack of faithfulness. Their lack of faith or faithfulness, their unbelief, lo amun, is described by the, is, well, that's what the, the, that, con, that Hebrew compound would denote. Unbelief, lack of faith, lack of faithfulness. Um, without vowels, la aman, it, it looks, it, it's, looks very close to the, the name Laman. Now, I want to be clear about something, and that is I do not believe that Lehi or Sariah would have named their son a negative name. That's, I don't believe that happened. But it doesn't preclude the um, later pejoration of that name to, in terms of words that it sounds like, especially words from their own lexical resources. When Nephi was shown a, a version of his father's tree of life dream, his angelic guide showed him that his brother's posterity would eventually overpower or overcome Nephi's own seed. As subsequent verses make clear, they did not mean that none of Nephi's posterity they didn't mean that Nephi's posterity was completely wiped out, but rather that the legacy of Laman and Lemuel's unbelief overcame um, a legacy of faith in Christ, the one whom the tree of life symbolized. So that takes us to, to 1 Nephi 12, 22 through 23. Quote, And the angel said unto me, um, Behold, these shall dwindle in unbelief. And it came to pass that after they had dwindled in unbelief, they became a dark and loathsome and filthy people, full of idleness and all manner of abominations. Easton 
Easton Flake, Amy Easton Flake suggests that by calling the people, quote, a dark and loathsome and filthy people, unquote, Nephi connects them to the symbols of hell in the dream. In Lehi's dream, the filthy water and the dark mist. The Lord's hiding his face, or panim, from degenerate Israelites finds a close analog in the conditional dynastic promise to, to Lehi and Nephi. Remember, the iteration of this promise that accompanies the separation of the Nephites from the Lamanites runs thus, inasmuch as they will not hearken unto thy Nephi's words, they shall be cut off from the presence of the Lord, and behold, they were cut off from his presence. Although the language from later in Nephi's vision suggests that both the surviving seed of Nephi as well as the, the seed of Laman and Lemuel and the rest would dwindle in unbelief. And Nephi's explanation of his vision, the Nephites generally equated unbelief with the Lamanites and their ancestral traditions. All right. All right, so John Gee and Matt Roper have demonstrated that 2 Nephi 5 verse 6 is key to understanding the composition of Nephite polity from the very beginning. Wherefore, it came to pass that I, Nephi, did take my family, and also Zoram and his family, and Sam, my elder brother, and his family, and Jacob, and Joseph, my younger brother, and also my sisters, and all the, those which would go with me. And note what he says here. And all they which would go with me were they which believed in the warnings and, the re and revelations of God, wherefore they did hearken unto my words. The key word here is believe. In Hebrew, a causative form of the verb aman. Nephi uses it, or its scribal equivalent, to distinguish his people from the people which were now called Lamanites. Second Nephi 5.23 points not only to future but almost intermediate, almost immediate intermarriage and political affiliation with those whom Nephi denominates Lamanites. And uh, Guy and Roper write regarding this, quote, un unidentified, unidentified people had at this early period already joined with the Lamanites in their opposition to Nephi, and his people had become and had become like the Lamanites, and Nephi saw this as a fulfillment of the Lord's prophecy. Moreover, they continue, Nephi's statement that about unidentified peoples intermarrying with the Lamanites seems to indicate the presence of other Lehite people, other um, peoples who, who, who were, had joined or were joining the Lamanites at the time of, of Nephi. Guy and Roper further, further proposed that Nephi's and Jacob's early uses of Isaiah pertained to the incorporation of Gentile others among those who supported Nephi and Zion. And if they're correct, the unnuanced traditional assumption that the term Lamanites functions primarily as a racial description widely misses the mark. In terms of their use of prophecies of, and writings of Isaiah, Nephi and Jacob, at Nephi's behest, quote a lot of 
texts that pertain to Zion, its establishment, and opposition thereto. Um, I could quote a lot of these. If, as it seems clear, that the, the verb believe, Hebrew, aman, constitutes the most important term in 2 Nephi 5.6 as distinguishing those who supported Nephi's leadership claims from those who supported Laman. The use of the, the same verb in Isaiah passages that Nephi and Jacob quote beg further, begs further scrutiny. Jacob, perhaps at the temple, declares the following regarding those including believing Gentiles then present. And I would cite you back to 2 Nephi 5.6 there. Who believe in the Messiah and consequently Nephi's claims to power versus those who, quote, fight against Zion, unquote. When that day cometh that they shall believe in him and none will he destroy that they that believe in him and none will and they that believe not in him shall be destroyed both by fire and by tempest and by earthquake and by bloodsheds and by pestilence and by famine and they shall know that the Lord and they shall know that the Lord is God the Holy One of Israel blending in imagery from Isaiah 29 Jacob directly alludes to one of the important messianic Zion prophecies in Isaiah, which describes a Davidic cornerstone laid as the first building block of Zion's foundation. Quote, therefore, quote, therefore, thus saith the Lord God, behold, I will lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious corner, a sure foundation. He that believeth, and there's the Hebrew word um, aman, Hama'amin, shall not make haste. Notably, Jacob goes back to the same Isianic text as a preface for his quotation of Zenos' allegory of the olive tree in Jacob 4, 16 through 17. The fundamental question in Jacob 4 through 6, as Jacob frames it, pertains to um, Judahite, Israelite rejection of the Messiah, a problem shared by the Lamanites. Quote, how is it possible that these, after having rejected the sure foundation, can ever build upon it that it may become the head of the corner? And, and of course, chapter 5 of, of Jacob answers that question, how, how that is possible. So Nephi quotes and light, likens a second relevant passage from Isaiah in order to emphasize his, to his audience immediate and latter-day the importance of having maintained covenant or covenant faith and faithfulness. Guy and Roper suggest the following recontextualization of Isaiah 7 in, in 2 Nephi 7 and in 2 Nephi 17 for the, the nascent people of Nephi, which would have included Gentiles, quote, who believed in the warnings and revelations of God, unquote. So they say, quote, within 40 years, of Lehi's departure from Jerusalem, perhaps after 30 years in the Promised Land, Nephi notes that we had already had wars, that's large-scale conflicts, and contentions with our brethren. In his ambition to gain power and insert his claims to rulership, Laman, leader of the people who are now called Lamanites, 
has made war on a, another ruler of Israelite descent, Nephi and his people. Perhaps frightened by the superior numbers, the people are counseled to trust in the Lord, since those who fight against Zion will end up licking up the dust of the licking up the dust of the feet of the covenant people of the Lord. Unquote. The key phrase in Isaiah 7 and in 2 Nephi 17 is, If ye will not believe, surely ye shall not be established. It's Isaiah 7, 9 or 2 Nephi 17, 9. Or, in the language of the NRSV, If you do not stand firm in faith, you, will not, you shall not stand. It's the phrase, Im lo Imlo ta'aminu ki lo te'amenu. You can see the clear wordplay in Hebrew there. On the negation of the verb aman. Imlo ta'aminu ki lo ta'amenu. There it's um, functioning as a deliberate paranomasia on laymen and Lamanites along the lines of unbelief. So Isaiah's message of encouragement to Ahaz in Isaiah 7-9 amounted to, quote, have faith and be faithful, unquote. Nephi's likening of this passage and its message to his people and the emerging Lamanite threat would have been, quote, if you have no faith, it is because you are not faithful. In other words, you will become like the Lamanites, those who had dwindled in unbelief or children in whom there is no faith, Deuteronomy 32.20. This appears to have happened to many of the Nephites by the time chronicled in the book of Omni. All right. Now I want to get into how some of, the, some of this rhetoric was used by later writers in the Book of Mormon. Um, we'll look real quickly at Jacob 3, 7. Remember when Jacob is criticizing the Nephites, and maybe the, the Nephite elite, for not only pride and a focus on worldly wealth, but also on immorality, he makes the following statement. Behold, um, behold, the Lamanite husbands love their wives, and their wives love their husbands, and their husbands and their wives love their children, and their unbelief, that's Lo'amun, and their hatred towards you is because of the iniquity of their fathers. Wherefore, how much better are you than they in the sight of your great creator? Here Jacob's rhetoric trades on an already developed Nephite pejoration of the, of the name Laman in terms of unbelief, Loamun. But importantly, Jacob's rhetoric, rhetorical question turns the Nephites' own religious and cultural self-perceptions on their head. No, note this. They were the good or fair ones. Since both Egyptian and Hebrew... Um, Languages form comparatives using an adjective and a preposition. Jacob's question would literally would have been something like, how much good are you than they? Jacob emphasizes the Nephites as the good or fair ones were not morally superior to the Lamanites, even, 
even some aspects of Lamanite culture, such as their family relationships, were better or more good than Nephite culture. Nephite, Jacob's allusion to white skin color in verse 8 is another allusion, I would suggest, back to Nephi's vision. It's a social code, alluding back to the Nephi's vision of the tree of life. Nevertheless, Nephites after Jacob's time continue to associate the, the Lamanites with unbelief. You see this with King Benjamin. Um, in his paranetic counsel to his sons, even our fathers would have dwindled in unbelief and we should have been like unto our brethren the Lamanites who know nothing concerning these things or do not believe them when they are taught them because of the traditions of their fathers which are not correct. Benjamin's words revolve around the traditional Nephite pejorative association of the names Laman and Lamanites with unbelief. Now this brings us to I have a few minutes left. Uh, I want to leave a little bit of time for, for questions if you have them. But it's interesting to see how Mormon dramatically demonstrates, this is an important part of his narrative, he, how he shows that Lamanite unbelief becomes Lamanite faithfulness, exceeding faith and faithfulness, and Lamanites becoming good. Um, Let's just move through these quickly. Um, you remember when Mosiah too inquired of the Lord, you know, they're at a point, and this is interesting because this comes at the same time as the Nephite abandonment of monarchy. Remember one of the key issues had been the right to rule. Um, that's not going to be an issue, and, and potentially that removes a major obstacle for the, the Lamanites receiving the gospel. When Mosiah too inquired of the Lord if he should let his sons go up among the Lamanites to preach the word, the Lord's response came, let them go up, for many shall believe. That's Hebrew, ya'aminu, on their words. In the Lord's response, we hear a gentle rebuke of the traditional Nephite association of the, the, the Lamanites with unbelief, as well as a paranomasia on the name Ammon. The Lord promises Mosiah the beginning of the reversal of that unbelief. And so Ammon, his brothers, and those who went with them commenced their mission to bring, if it were possible, the Lamanites to the knowledge of the truth, or to the knowledge of the baseness of the traditions of their father, which were not correct. As noted previously, one of the traditional grievances against the Nephites concerned the right to rule, a political issue. Knowing this, Ammon assumes the role of a servant rather than a ruler in his words, quote, to win the hearts of my fellow servants that I may lead them to believe on my words. Ammon quickly distinguishes himself by his faithfulness. Note chapter 18, verse 2. 
following Ammon's route of those plundering Lamoni's flocks, Mormon records, and when they had all testified to these things which had been, which, things which they'd seen, and Lamoni learned, learned of the faithfulness of Ammon, in Hebrew faithfulness, is, there would be a munat of Ammon in preserving the flocks, and also of his great power in contending against the, those who, were, who sought to slay him. He was astonished exceedingly and said, surely this is more than a man. And verses later, when he finds out that Ammon's working in his stalls, he, 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 Mormon reports the following, quote, Now when King Lamoni had heard that Ammon was preparing his horses and his chariots, he was more astonished because of the faithfulness of Ammon. Amunat, Ammon, you can hear the wordplay there. Surely there has not been any servant among all my servants that has been so faithful, that's Hebrew ne'aman, as this man, for he even doth remember all my commandments to execute him. That, execute them. That language there has a very close relationship with 1 Samuel 22, 14, where um, Ahimelech says regarding David to Saul, he says, who is so faithful among all thy servants as David? And, the, and then the word there is ne'aman. Given the homonymy between Ammon and the, the Hebrew roots Ammon in its various forms, the root from which the name Ammon, that's a name that um, Martin Noth has noted means faithful, might ultimately derive, this appears to be a supremely fitting narrative detail. Mormon, writing hundreds of years later, is, would have been aware of why some of these narrative details are, were so important to draw out in the record. Mormon makes thoroughgoing use of this paranomastic association through the Lamanite conversion narratives presenting Ammon as the catalyst, note the name meaning faithful, through which many Lamanites transition from trenchant unbelief to unshakable faithfulness. Um, we see a proliferation in, in chapters 17 through 22 of this, uh, of this verb, aman, which means to have faith or to believe. Um, it, it's worth, do, in your scripture study, worth going through and underlining all these words, the word faith or the word believe or the word true, which all derive in Hebrew from the, verb aman, or from the verbal root aman. Um, clearly there's something, at least in my view, going on Something clear going on there. Um, now, there are some important summative statements that the Mormon makes regarding the Lamanite conversions. Um, Alma 23, verses 5 through 6. And thousands were brought to the knowledge of the Lord, yea, thousands were brought to believe in the traditions of the Nephites, and were taught the records and prophecies which were handed down even to the present time. As sure as the Lord liveth, so sure as many believed 
or as many as were brought to the knowledge of the truth through the preaching of Ammon and his brethren according to the spirit of revelation and prophecy and the power of God working miracles in them. Yea, I say unto you that as the Lord liveth, as many as the Lamanites as believed in their preaching and were converted never did fall away. There's language there echoing the Nephi's vision of the tree of life. Converted Lamanites were not among those that in the, in the vision fell away from the tree. Another important summative statement comes in Alma 27, um, verses 26 through 27. And they were called by the Nephites the people of Ammon. Therefore, they were distinguished by that name ever after. And they were numbered among the people of Nephi and also among the people who were of the church of God. And they were also distinguished for their zeal towards God and also towards men. For they were perfectly honest and upright in all things. And they were firm in the faith of Christ. Note that that word comes in there. They were firm in the faith of Christ even unto the end. Um... So to su sort of sum up what we've been talking about in this, this second part, um, Ammon, whose name either means or is closely connected with faithful. Um, as John Tavetnus pointed out years ago, the name Lamoni, as a Nisbah adjective, would have meant Lamanite, one of this tribe or you know, the people of, associated with Laman. The people of Ammon might then be understood to be the people of faithfulness. And, and perhaps there's more work to be done here. Anti-Nephi-Lehi, a name given to um, Lamoni's brother as a throne name, might have meant something like Lehi who is good, or as this name was applied more broadly to the people, Lehites or descendants of Lehi who are good. Um, I want to just briefly touch on, you see Mormon emphasize in the subsequent generations how we, we a generation later, the, the, the sons of the converted Lamanites distinct, are distinguished by their faith. In, in his letter to Moroni, Helaman, at the very beginning of this letter, invokes this old association between layman, Lamanites and unbelief. But then he proceeds to compare the faithfulness of these young men, both to the unconverted, to favorably compare the faithfulness of these young men against the, the, uh, the unconverted Lamanites and the Nephites themselves. Um, one of my favorite passages in the Book of Mormon, Alma 57, 19 through 21, the faithfulness of these young men. Um, yeah, and it was, even according to their faith, was it done unto them. Amunatam. It was done unto them, and I did remember the words which they had said unto me that their mothers had taught them. It was the covenant faithfulness of parents, and especially mothers, that resulted in the miracles. And that's an important inclusion that Mormon is making in his record to emphasize um, the faithfulness of converted Lamanites. We, 
see this later as the reason for their miraculous preservation, and we do justly ascribe it to the miraculous power of God because of their exceeding faith um, in that which they've been taught to believe. Um, at the conclusion of his letter, Helaman returns to this theme essentially as an inclusio to his mention of Ammon, Lamanites, and unbelief. Um, their faith is strong in that, the prophecies concerning that which is to come. Um, later on, we'll see Mormon emphasize the increasing faithfulness and righteousness of the Lamanites versus the Nephites who begin to dwindle in unbelief. Um, Helaman 6.34, Mormon states, and thus we see that the Nephites did begin to dwindle in unbelief and grow in wickedness and abominations while the Lamanites began to grow exceedingly in the knowledge of their God. That's a covenant term as well. And you compare that back to 1 Nephi 1.1. 1, 1. Um, then we get to Samuel the Lamanite's speech, and um, I'm preparing a, a longer or a, a separate work on this all of the, the rhetoric that Samuel uses to really push the buttons of his Nephite audience atop the walls of Zarahemla. He'll emphasize the Lamanite faithfulness, um, extreme faithfulness, observed faithfulness then for more than five decades versus the current state of the, the Nephites. Verses 7 through 11 are a good sample of this. And now because of their steadfastness when they do believe in the thing which they do believe, for because of their firmness when they are once enlightened, behold, the Lord shall bless them and prolong their days, notwithstanding their iniquity. Even if they should dwindle in unbelief, the Lord shall prolong their days until the time shall come which hath been spoken of by our fathers and also by the prophet Zenos and many other prophets concerning the restoration of their, our brethren, the Lamanites, again to the knowledge of the truth. Um, but Samuel Lamanite doesn't stop there. He doesn't uh, ratchet down the rhetoric. In fact, this is something we've seen before. Therefore I say unto you, it shall be better, or literally good, for them than for you, except you repent. For behold, had the mighty works been shown unto you, unto them, which have been shown unto you, unto them who have dwindled in unbelief because of the traditions of the fathers, ye see, see, conceive yourselves that they would never again have dwindled in unbelief. And then he says there at the, the end of those verses that if they, speaking of the Nephites, if they will not repent and observe to do my will, I will utterly destroy them, saith the Lord, because of their unbelief. Um, this is where I'll sort of begin to draw this to a close. <clears throat> we get this interesting passage that has in the past had racial, sort of a racial charge to it, but I don't think it needs to if we view this in terms of Nephi's vision of the tree of life. Third Nephi 2, 14 through 16, and it came to pass that those who, those Lamanites who had united with the Nephites were numbered among the Nephites. And the curse was taken from them and their skin became white like unto Nephites and their young men their daughters became exceedingly fair, and they were numbered among the Nephites and were called Nephites. Um, regarding this passage and the earlier one in 2 Nephi 5.21, Brent Gardner has said that skin became white and skin 
um, of, and skin of blackness are both cultural codes for social distinctions, and that black becoming white is a metaphor for political change, probably formally acknowledging that the groups may now intermarry. It lifts the curse in Nephi, in 2 Nephi 5, that ruled Lamanites out as legitimate sources of spouses. I think this all goes back to the um, Nephi's vision of the tree of life and the way that vision, um, out of which the Nephites drew a number of different social codes. Um, Mormon will emphasize again that it was the faithful Lamanites that saved the church in 3 Nephi 6.14. The church was broken up in all the land, save it were a few among a few of the Lamanites which were converted unto the true faith, and they would not depart from it, for they were firm, steadfast, and immovable. That's quoting language from Lehi earlier, early in Nephi's small plates. Um, 4 Nephi 1.10 the appearance and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ to the Lamanites and Nephites um, functionally erased them as meaningful designations for a long time. Mormon plays on the meaning of the name Nephi and Nephites when he remarks, and now behold it came to pass that the people of Nephi did not, did wax strong and did multiply exceedingly fast and became an exceedingly fair and delightsome people. This is all language that is going back to the language of Nephi's vision. They were all partakers of the heavenly gift or partakers of the tree of life. Um, to conclude, Nephi and his successors understood the name Nephi in terms of its evident e e Egyptian etymological meaning, good, goodly, or fair. Ample textual evidence suggests that the Nephites understood and used the derived gentilic term Nephites in the sense of good or fair ones. This understanding in conjunction with the related concept of those partaking of the fruit of the tree as fair in Nephi's vision profoundly shaped Nephite self-understanding and the application of Nephites as religious, political, and as a religious, political, and social descriptor. Moreover, an abundance of textual evidence suggests that the Nephites pejoratively treated the name Laman in terms of the similar-sounding Hebrew expression, loamun, no faith, unbelief, Deuteronomy 32.20, and the negations of that verb, of the, and negations of the verb aman, that's low plus forms of aman. This pejorative association also has roots in Nephi's vision of the tree of life and description of those who, like Laman and Lemuel, did not partake of the fruit as those who dwindled in unbelief. A major focus of Mormon's abridged narrative is to show how the Lamanites, whose conversion began with the efforts of Ammon, faithful, and his brethren came to embody covenant faithfulness, Amuna. In view of the foregoing, Nephites and Lamanites functioned primarily as religious descriptors of those who believed or disbelieved Nephite religious traditions, especially those pertaining to the Messiah, those who partook of the tree of life versus those who d did not and would not. They also originally described political affiliation 
and loyalty and constituted general descriptors of lived culture. This has important implications for how we read passages like 1 Nephi 12, 20, 22 through 23, 2 Nephi 25, 21 through 22, Jacob 3, 3 through 11, and Alma 3, 4 through 19, and 3, and 3 Nephi 2, 14 through 16, which are sometimes assumed to be merely describing some kind of divine genetic reengineering. We do far better, in my view, to see these passages and the social codes they employ as reflecting Nephite self-understanding rooted in Nephi's vision of the tree of life. I would just want to share my testimony with you in closing that I, I love the Book of Mormon. It's so much more complex and rich, and we're just, um, I think we're just getting started. I hope that's been evident in the and all of the presentations today. There are a lot of great things that are about to happen. And I'm grateful for the Book of Mormon and its testimony of Jesus Christ. He's the, he's the most important focus of the whole thing, including faith and the covenant path that, that leads us to him. And, and I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you. All right, Nephi, the first writer in the Book of Mormon, is referred to as good and Mormon who abridged the plates and was all around awesome. I agree. Um, it's known as more good. Oh, yeah, is known as more good. By the way, I've, I've written about that. That, um, that phrase, more good, that was apparently William W. Phelps who developed that as a kind of pseudo-etymology um, to sort of ape, in Paul Hoskinson's words, the, ant the flippant anti-Mormon literature of the time. It's, it's actually a really sly pun. The, the, the Bible is called the good book. So William W. Phelps, under the you know, writing under the name of the prophet in the times and season, he wryly referred to the Book of Mormon as the Book of Morgood. Actually, I think there's a better Egyptological explanation for the name Mormon that isn't. Um, so what Phelps was doing there was, he wasn't, if you look at what he was writing, he wasn't offering a serious etymology for the name Mormon, but what he was doing was aping the, you had people mocking the name Mormon as meaning hobgoblin, bugbear, and nonsense like that. He was, it was, it was treating, responding to satire with satire. Hopefully that answers that. Um, are you aware of any non-LDS linguistic scholars who have seriously evaluated the many paramonomastic proposals for the, the names in the Book of Mormon? There's one scholar who I won't name, who was a peer reviewer on my book that's out there, um, who he, you know, he responded pretty favorable to a lot of what I was proposing. Um, a lot of you will remember William Albright's comments on the names Pahoran and Paanki, which he saw as um, very, yeah, being very clearly Egyptian. Um, it, 
it seems likely that the Lamanites would have used the positive meaning in referring to themselves. Well, that's exactly what Samuel the Lamanite sort of does, is he turns around the, the, the rhetoric of unbelief and lack of faith to exceedingly faithful. Um, is there a pejorative play that, that on Nephi um, the Lamanites might have used? I'm going to have to think about that one. Other than, it's pretty one-sided because the, it's all Nephite writers and a, a Nephite editor who are giving us everything. But I would say that the, when Samuel the Lamanite says it would be better for them than for you except you repent that he's doing that, I think that that's a, he, he's punning on, on the name Nephi. Um, does the, the characteristics of the, prophet, of the prophet as described by their name suggest their prophecies, who the, they will become, or was the, the name assigned to them after their lives were over? Um, there's a principle of naming that you see even in modern culture, even uh, and including Latter-day Saint culture, were uh, ancients were much more aware of the meanings of names, but often names were given in the hope that one would live up to the characteristics implied in the name. I think Nephi is making a point that early on that he that he has lived up to it, but he but he does it in a way that it credits the quality of. His, of Lehi and Sariah, his parents. Um, Ammon, I'm, if, the name means, if the name means faithful, which I believe it does and believe there's good evidence that it does, um, that would, would have been given in the hope that he lived faithfully. And he does. And in fact, his, the legacy of what happens because of his efforts are a, a testimony to that name. The name Lemuel, which I mentioned earlier means belonging to God, that probably could have been lived up to better by one of Lehi's sons. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.